Well, it's good to see you all. Good to be home. I've been on the road for a couple weeks here. Um, I had a really nice time in Boston. I uh, got to do some work on my dissertation there. I got to go to a really good ball game. Celtics Warriors went into overtime. Steph hit one from half court. That was great. Uh, and I just had a really excellent time um, while I was there. I uh, got back and I thought, you know, I've eaten all of this great Italian food in the North End. Uh, if you've ever eaten in Little Italy there uh, in Boston, I ate my share. I thought I better hit the gym getting back. So I hit it pretty hard the last two days. And today, I can't straighten my arms. <laughs> so, so if I go to greet you and I give you something like this, I'm not being cold. I just don't want to cry in front of you. So. <laughs> Uh, If you'd open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. And I hope that by now you've noticed that one of the refrains, uh, one of the features in the book of Acts is is this steady refrain of what I'll call the rise refrain, the rise refrain, where basically we hear a statement like, and the word of the Lord spread, or and the church grew, or the Lord added to their number. It sounds like this, and already we have seen 11 of these uh, since we've started the book, 11 of these statements all along the way, and there were three uh, in the passage last week, and there's uh, one in this week's um, passage, and that is just a a steady feature of the book of Acts. Uh, Just by way of recap, maybe as much for me as for you, if you weren't here the last two weeks, two weeks ago, Pastor Adam Uh, preached about one of the watershed moments really in the history of the world where salvation was available to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. And uh, we we had this really beautiful passage, Acts 11, 18. So then even to Gentiles, and that's us or most of us, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And then last week, uh, Pastor Mark uh, showed us how the church had really taken uh, root in Antioch, kind of a new, a new center in actually what would become the capital for the church, so to speak. Uh, and amazingly, this was the second most sinful city in the region. Uh, the first belonged to Corinth. They were sort of the sin city of the day, but uh, you might call you know, Antioch sort of like the Atlantic City or the Miami Beach of the day. It was noted for its immorality, and yet it was there that the church took root. And the light of Christ in and among Christians stood out as a brilliant contrast in that region, such that they were called Christians first there. These people who resembled Jesus. They had become his apprentices, his students. They learned not just of what he taught and had it in their head, but it shaped their lives and They were formed and fashioned according to Christ. Um, And throughout the book of Acts, up to this point, we are meant to see that the rise of the Christian church happens against all of the difficulties of the day, against persecution on many fronts, many potential setbacks and distractions. The rise of the church happens, just as Jesus said it would, that he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Uh, And so today what we find uh, is our text brings us uh, back into Jerusalem. So we were in Antioch last week, but this week we're back into Jerusalem. And we find a new adversary. Um, 
and what will actually be part of the reason that Antioch ends up becoming sort of the capital for the church, and that's because of the heavy persecution that happens in and around Jerusalem as things sort of escalate there. So uh, if you want to take out your handout, if you haven't already this morning, I hope this will be kind of a help for you as we go through the sermon. I've titled my message this morning, The Big Man. The Big Man. Uh, Probably at one time or another in your life, you have come across the big man, as I'm calling him. Uh, And this is a figure that sets themselves up as your adversary. Uh, To use the terminology of the Psalms, it would be my enemy. Um, This is a person who, at their root, uh, are against God, and therefore against you as a God follower. Um, This kind of person is prideful. They're obstinate, they're unyielding, they're self-promoting, they're manipulative, they're overpowering, and they really only care about themselves, and they will happily trample upon others to advance their own stature. That is sort of the big man. Uh, I'm reading, or just finished actually, a novel here uh, just recently, it's it's called, um, or titled, A Man Called Ove. I don't know, anybody else reading that right now? Or you saw the movie? Amy said I couldn't see the movie until I read the book, so I got the book, and I read it on my trip. And if you read that, or if you saw the movie, you know, Ove's encounter with the big man, he calls them the white shirts, right? These are the bureaucrats who know how to say no to everything and deny responsibility for actually helping the big man. Uh, A number of years ago, I was in Ethiopia, and uh, I was with a bunch of pastors and leaders from the church in Addis Ababa, and we were in one of these taxis. I think they were called Wiats, if I remember right, but we were, it's a, basically a minivan with 40 of us crammed in there. Not 40, but it felt like it. And uh, we were driving around through town, and uh, a guy pulled out in front of us, and he was driving a Land Cruiser Prada. And the passengers in the uh, car kind of got riled up and said, oh, look, the big man. And I didn't have the heart to tell them, I have a Land Cruiser at home, too. <laughs> So clearly it can't just be the car one drives. Or let's look at maybe some present-day political figures. Here we go. The big man. Let's start with Russia. That's easy to poke at right now. How about Vladimir Putin? The big man. Or Kim Jong-un. The big man. Here at home, I'll leave it to you to insert name here, whomever you think that is. Maybe in your personal life, maybe it's your supervisor. It's the corporate office, your commanding officer. Uh, It's the insurance company, district office, an agency of some kind, or maybe closer to home, maybe it's a family member, and they're the big man. And I think what we find in our passage today is how God and his mission are bigger than the big man. Even though he, they, whatever, try to set themselves up and oppose God, we see how God ultimately has his way. Or to put it in a little more memorable, catchy phrase, I'll say it this way. What begins with a big flex ends in a hot mess. That's what we find in our passage. So let's look at this together here. Acts 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. 
he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Okay, there are some things that are happening sort of geopolitically behind the scenes here that I think are really interesting and kind of help add some emphasis to what we see here. The first thing you might wonder is, who is this Herod figure? Every time we encounter Herod in the scriptures, it seems like he's got it in for the church. So who is Herod? Well, in case you didn't know, Herod isn't just one person, but it's a collection of people. It's sort of the local governors who rule on behalf, rule a region or a territory on behalf of Rome. And so the one that we have in view here, his name is actually Herod Agrippa I. And he's kind of a bad dude. He definitely sets himself up as the big man. And the, the Herods, uh, sort of the Herodian dynasty uh, at this particular time, this, they have, there's a complicated history. They have complicated relationships with one another, even competitive at times. Uh, but what you should understand or need to understand, they're the local governors of the occupying state of Rome, okay? And um, they varied in their popularity and in their treachery, but they're representing Rome and they're ruling over uh, the people here. And so the first point this morning is this, that the big man, or Herod Agrippa I, initiates persecution in Jerusalem. And this guy, Agrippa here, what's going on in the background is he's just received quite a bit of a windfall. His star is on the rise. Uh, he is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was ruling when Jesus was born. He's the nephew to another Herod named Herod Antipas, and that might ring a bell for you. Herod Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded, and he was the one who tried Jesus. But Herod Antipas was exiled shortly after that event, and his territory was given to Agrippa here. And not only that, but two other regions uh, of Herodian rule were also given to him. So he has just had this windfall of power and territory. His star is on the rise. He is the big man. He knows it, and he loves it. That's what's going on here. Um, now, as you know, because you've been with us, hopefully, through most of the book of Acts, we've already seen persecution in Jerusalem before, right? The apostles in the temple courts, when they were preaching, were arrested and released. Then they were arrested and flogged. And then we saw even someone like Stephen, who was martyred. He was killed. But all of these forms of persecution up until this point have previously been done at the hands of the religious leaders, this persecution of the church here is some, from somewhat of a new source. It's the state. So there's kind of a, there's a shift here. There's an intensity. Now it's coming from multiple sources. So you can sort of imagine how this, um, how this hits the people. And strangely, we're given no reason why Agrippa begins this persecution. Just says that he does it, matter of fact. But when he discovers that it meets with the approval of the Jews, oh, this will give me some more support, the big man doubles down and he um, goes and gets Peter as well. 
So what we find here is that James, the first apostle to be martyred, the first apostle to be martyred. And um, again, we've seen the martyrdom of Stephen. He was stoned for his sort of blasphemous vision of seeing the Son of Man at the right hand of God. And for that, the Jews came out and stoned him. He was a good and godly man, but he wasn't an apostle. Now we have one of the 12. Capital A Apostle, who's been killed by the sword, and the state was the one wielding it. This, this is a new kind of fear, a new kind of intensity, a new kind of shock that would likely hit uh, the followers of Christ. Um, again, one of the 12, an apostle commissioned by Christ, and not only that, but part of Jesus' inner circle, right? Think how often we hear in the Gospels, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers, they were the sons of Zebedee, also known as, do you know, sons of thunder. Boy, you guys go to a Bible teaching church, don't you? You had that one. Sons of thunder, partly because of their sort of brash personality. There was a particular point, uh, you know, when, when Jesus was looking for some hospitality among the Samaritans and they wouldn't give it to him. And the sons of thunder said, you know, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and sort of melt these people, Jesus? So this is kind of their big, bold personality, and they served as sentinels for Jesus, and yet it's one of them who is killed. And again, I think it's sort of easy maybe to pass over this data point, but how would that hit the church? We've been persecuted by the religious leaders because they think we've, you know, messed with Judaism, but now the state is after us, and they're killing us, and they're targeting our top-tier leaders. That, that's a real heavy time. That's a real loaded situation. And we see again that Peter is next. He's arrested, and they're preparing to bring him out, not really for a trial, because it's not going to be a trial. It's just going to be a display. It's just going to be a flex of Agrippa's power. That's all that's here. So I want to look at this, I want to kind of pay attention to a, sort of a theological perspective that I think is important, because there's two things that are happening here simultaneously. And the first is this, we, we've already seen in this refrain that the gospel is spreading, the church is growing, people are being added to their number regularly, and so this good thing is happening. But persecution is right there as well. Both are happening side by side. And so I think what we need to pay attention to or recognize is this, and this is going to sound a little funny at first, but the work of Satan and the work of God are oftentimes intermingled in surprising ways. And what I mean to say is this, evil, even evil, is a tool in God's bag. He is not the creator of it. He is not the author of it. But he can take what Satan intends as evil and turn it out for his own purposes. He does it all the time through Scripture. And this is something that I think is good for us to know. I was thinking about this this week, and what came to mind is I was, I was thinking that there is a particular form of martial arts where you use the aggressor's attack against them. Anybody familiar with this? Do we have any martial artists here? No, okay. Well, I'll just tell you what I've learned then. So this is called judo. 
And judo actually is Japanese. It means the gentle way. It is a way of taking an aggressor's attack and using their momentum and strength against them. You know, throw them into the wall, whatever. I was thinking, you know, that's a lot how God works. You come at him, you come at his people, you try to set yourself up in opposition to him, and somehow he just takes that attack and he inverts it and puts them on their back. And we see it all over in the scripture. Certainly we saw it with Joseph in the Old Testament, right? You intended this for evil, but God meant it for good, the saving of many lives. We certainly see it supremely at the cross, something that was even uh, anticipated, that was told to us all the way back in Genesis 3, as, as the Lord speaks to the serpent and says, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head, right? Somehow evil and persecution and the plan and providence of God can be intermingled in ways that we can ultimately trust God. So the rise of the Christian church is not going to be without adversity, not without opposition, not without setback, but all of it will ultimately go to serve God's purposes. And I want to bring that into sort of a point of just personal application. If you're looking for a a faith, a personal faith, that is simply going to bring you into the realm of prosperity, this isn't it. The Christian faith isn't it. If you're looking for a faith that's just going to make your life better and not give you any difficulties at all, look elsewhere. Because Jesus teaches that his followers are to count the cost. That we are to take up our cross and follow him. The way of Jesus is going to be the way of sacrifice. We're we're taught that in this world we're going to have trouble and to take heart that Christ has overcome the world. But there are way too many prosperity gospel preachers out there and way too many people who just want that, that simple sugary faith. But faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is much more substantial and much more costly. Uh, the Apostle Paul taught yet young Timothy this in, in his uh, pastoral epistle, 2 Timothy 3. He says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, Patience, this is a good list. Love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the Christian faith. It will happen. That day will come. That day will come. And so I think we actually get a pretty nice example from the disciples here on how we might handle that if that day should come to us or when it comes to us. That's our second point. The people of God, by faith, believe that the church will ultimately prevail. Uh, Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed. 
him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing, that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of the street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda, by the way, she gets some pretty rough treatment here. Poor Rhoda. A servant named Rhoda came to uh, answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. I love that. I'm going to start using that phrase regularly now because it's in Scripture. (laughs) You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, It must be his angel, which is like a whole other sermon for another day. I don't know exactly where they're coming from there. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. The big man. There's this move again. So what are we supposed to learn from this? Um, I think there's three things here. I'm going to be kind of maybe exaggerating one a little bit more than is there, but nevertheless, I think there's three things here. And the first is this, that the people of God are to pray. The people of God are a praying people. The disciples are not always the best of examples for us, uh, but they do a pretty good job here, at least for the most part. The text tells us that they are earnestly praying. Earnestly praying. And the imperfect tense there of the verb shows that this is something that is ongoing, probably even for days. They persevered in prayer. And I think there's this great uh, just human moment here The servant, Rhoda, so stunned, right? She's so stunned that Peter's actually at the door. She doesn't open it. She just disappears and she goes, you know, interrupts the prayer meeting and says, hey, he's at the door. And her friends give her this wonderful Christian response, right? You're out of your mind, you old bag. You know, what are you? Okay, that's my amplified version, but. (laughs) You're out of your mind, Quit interrupting prayer. We're praying for Peter. We're praying that he be delivered. Yeah, he's at the door. You're out of your mind. And I, we laugh at this, but I, there's something I identify with here, and it's kind of this, what you might almost call this partial measure of faith. They're praying for something, and they're in the midst of receiving it. But somehow they're not ready to accept it. And you, and you think, Do you have confidence in your prayers? I think one of the great mysteries of prayer is not that sometimes God doesn't give us what we ask for, but rather that frequently he does. That is a mystery of prayer. That in some way, our prayers move the hand of God. I can't unpack that much more. (laughs) 
I don't know. I don't understand all of that. It doesn't make me entirely comfortable. I mean, sometimes I almost feel apologetic in prayer, like, Lord, I don't, you know, I mean, I'll ask for this, but you probably know better, you know. But somehow, our prayers move the hand of God. And again, I think the mystery is not that sometimes we don't get what we ask for, but that very often we do. God wants us to pray. Jesus taught us to do it. Jesus taught us how to do it. Jesus modeled a life of prayer for us. And I got to think that if very God of very God, if God the Son in his incarnate state here on earth persisted in prayer and lived in dependence on the Father in prayer, how much more so do you and I need to do this? To be earnest in prayer. Um, As Westerners, as Alaskans, as whatever else you got in your profile, I think it's very tempting for us to kind of roll up our sleeves, get to work, and get her done. We've got a problem, let's get about fixing it. And we think that's our job, get to work. But I'm reminded of what Oswald Chambers said of prayer. Prayer is the greater work. Why do we pray last? Why don't we pray first? So I think the church is a great example here for us um, in that. And then secondly, I think Peter's a pretty good example that the people of God are to obey, even in the midst of adversity. Um, now, this is the point I'm probably stretching a little bit, but I'll just say this. When Peter's woken up by an angel, he does what he's told. Repeatedly. Get up. Okay. Put this on. All right. Put your cloak on too. Okay. He does it, and he followed. Just simple acts of obedience and it might feel like I'm, I'm making sort of a big deal out of that, but he does what he's told. I think oftentimes we can feel a little disappointed, like, you know, it would be really nice if an angel showed up and just kind of told me, you're to do this. Eric, let's put this outfit on today. Let's go here. Let's have this conversation. Or we would really love some of these Old Testament theophanies where God shows up and speaks, and we think, man, my faith would be strong then, right? I'd be rocking it. Oh, yeah. Give me a theophany, give me an angel. And I just want to tell you that as New Testament believers, we're so much more privileged. So much more privileged. We have the greatest event in the history of the world, that is God took on human flesh and came to earth and lived among us. Talk about a theophany. We have the life and the teachings of Jesus recorded for us and preserved in the scriptures. We have the doctrine of the church preserved, that the apostles proclaimed, showing what it looks like to walk with Jesus and to be his church family. And we have God, the Holy Spirit, permanently indwelling us until we're taken home. So we are privileged as New Testament believers. Peter assured the church in 2 Peter 1, he says this, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and goodness. We're not lacking anything. What God has given us is not insufficient. We're privileged. Uh, The next point I want to talk about here is this. I think uh, this is pretty cool, just what Peter says to him. We see that the people of God bear witness to his work. Verse 17, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left 
for another place. Now, the James he has in view here is, is his half-brother, uh, who would later become sort of a key leader and figure in the church in Jerusalem. But Peter wants to bless the other people with this good news. And as we have been talking uh, through the book of uh, Acts here quite a lot about being Christ's witnesses, and we should, that's a major feature of the book. It's a focal point, to be his witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? And very often when we talk about being witnesses for Christ, we think about sharing the gospel with someone who does not yet believe it. And that's kind of the emphasis. That's fair and that's fine. But there's also something to being a witness of God's work for the people of God and encouraging one another with how God is working in our lives and what he has done for us. And that kind of sharing is put on display here. Um, And I had a really good example of this on my trip that I thought I'd share with you if you guys are up for it. We're not going to take a vote. I'm just going to tell you. So, uh, It was this last Sunday, and I went to church um, downtown, or not downtown Boston, actually in the Fenway area, just a couple blocks from Fenway Park. And my friend is the pastor there, and I've had a few other friends that go to that church. I had a nice time visiting with them. And then afterwards, I went down the street a few blocks because there is a brewery there called Trillium. And I'll just, I don't mean to scandalize you, but pastor likes a beer every now and then. So I went to Trillium after church. Cool building. It's all glass walls. So it's all this beautiful light, and then it's warm. And I had my book with me, Man Called Ove, and I sat down, and I'm just, just kind of hanging out, having a nice time, and a guy comes up. And he starts talking to me, and he says, hey, what are you reading there? So I showed him. And he says, oh, have you, have you read this book? And I said, I haven't read that one yet. And we just start talking back and forth. And after a little bit of conversation, he says, the funniest thing, he goes, are you a minister by chance? I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, I, is it the hair? Is it, you know, what, am I, what vibe am I giving off? How did you guess that? You know, am I on a TV show? He says, you used the word grace. Uh, don't people not use that word? But anyways, I, uh, yeah, I, I am a minister, and I told him about you all in our church here and, and what I was doing uh, at Labrie, and we just had a really great conversation about where he was. At, like, we're the same age. Uh, he is a physician doing research on cancer, and we just had a, a great time identifying with one another. He says that he's a Christian, but he's had a bit of a crossroads in his life, and he had a lot of questions. And we just talked. It was a great time. And he gets up to leave and he says, do you know, Eric, it was really great to meet you. Could you tell me the name of your church? Because I'd like to make a donation. And I hope you don't mind. But I said, no, because <laughs> I'm very sensitive um, to ever looking like a, a pastor or like I would profit from somebody else's contribution that way. Okay, so I was kind of guarded about that. And I said, you know what, I'm here at this Christian Fellowship Libri, they've been a nourishment to me. If, if you wanted to make a contribution uh, to the cause of Christ, would you consider making it there? And he said, I'd love to. I, could you type it in my browser for me? So I punched it in. He's like, thanks, it was really great to meet you. And he left. So I thought, well, I'm going to text my friend Ben, who's the director at Libri, and let him know, hey, just so you know, I met this guy, Samuel, sweet guy, he might be making a contribution, just keep your eye out for it. And uh, I'm in the middle of texting him, and it's about 10 minutes later, and suddenly somebody grabs my shoulders, and I turn around, and it's Samuel. He had left, and he came back. 
He said, I punched in that Christian organization that you're at, and I was looking at it, his eyes watered up. He said, this is exactly what I need. I've been looking to have a spiritual retreat, to go somewhere, to consider how God would redirect my life, and this is going to be perfect. Thank you for meeting with me. Thank you for sharing with me. I was just like, man, praise God. I didn't set that up. I didn't orchestrate that, you know. My book was almost a prop, like, hey, don't bother me, you know. (laughs) And we had this beautiful gospel conversation. I found out this guy is my brother in Christ. And we got to be an encouragement to one another. Friends, we need to be witnesses with the gospel to those who don't yet know. And we need to be witnesses to one another about what God is doing in our lives and through our lives. That we might be an encouragement to one another. Our third and final point here. The big man, Herod Agrippa, is brought low. Boy, is he brought low here. He's brought low. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to spread and flourish. Um, One of our goals when we're preaching and teaching is not just to tell you what's in the text, or not just to proclaim what's in the text, but we also want to show you how to read the text so that you're equipped, so that you can nourish yourself spiritually. And there's this interesting thing in the text here. It begins with this story of Agrippa and sort of his flex to power, and then we have sort of this middle event, but then we have this conclusion of where his flex to power really goes sideways on him, right? Talk about being brought low, eaten by worms and dying. I'm going to call that low. Or, as I've said earlier, what begins as a big flex ends with a hot mess, right? His posturing against God and against his people uh, brings him down. And so we're basically shown that the pride of man is contrasted with God's power. Agrippa, who seemed to be the power of the day, rising star, having everything he wanted, is brought down in a few years. And the church persists today. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. James 4 tells us, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We are meant to have a quiet confidence in the midst of persecution that the Lord will build his church. We're meant to see how Christians handle these times of opposition. Persisting in prayer, obeying, and being witnesses even to one another about God's activity. We're meant to be encouraged by the saving power of God. And we're meant to be warned about the dangers of pride and arrogance. The way of faith, the way of Christianity, is the way of the cross, the way of humility, the way of the table we're going to turn to now. Would you pray with me?
Father, we can see in the history of the church that persecution has always been with us. And as we look at the teachings of Jesus and of the apostles, we can see that persecution will be there for the church going forward. Things will get worse before they get better. So I pray, Lord, that we would be a people whose commitment and whose faith is centered in you, not on prosperity or things going well or going our way. May we learn from these who suffered for your name on how to do so well. I pray now that as we turn to the Lord's table, we would rejoice in how you, Jesus, suffered for us. You took our sin. You crushed it in yourself at the cross, stricken by the serpent and yet crushing his head. You've made a way that we will be eternally yours. So may we endure persecution and struggle well. May we persevere in prayer and obedience and witness for your name's sake. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.